is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. The war that never went away, why there's intense fighting in Ukraine. Should the UK send ground troops to fight alongside the Iraqi army? One former British army commander thinks they should. What's wrong with the American jets Britain's buying for its new carriers? We talk to the ex-Royal Navy pilot who knows. And what's the future for our electronic snoopers? Today, the Chancellor, George Osborne, has told us how much money Defence has to lose from its budget. Well, how much is it, Christopher Lee? It is going to be £500 million. That's half a billion pounds. But this is not the Strategic Defence Review figure. This is simply what the, uh, the drop in the Defence budget from next year's figures. Mm-hmm. So it's just one year. Uh, and that's all it is. It shouldn't be confused. Uh, we've got all the figures, and it would it would compare, for for example, um, transport loses that sort of uh, that sort of money, business, innovation, skills, that sort of money. But it's in the top three education, part of education budget as well. So that's it that's was what to the be figure. expected, I suppose, wasn't it? It was to be expected. Uh, the Chancellor has been saying for some time that there has to be a percentage cut, and everybody, every department will have to lose something, have to make their contribution to it. But that is all it is. How much? How much will it hurt? Because it's about efficiency savings, isn't it? And the Defence Secretary was saying the day after the election that he thought this could be done. Efficiency savings. Efficiency Efficiency savings are the easiest one to talk about, not necessarily the easiest one to do. The other thing is that you start looking, for example, at the, the year just passed, and you look at that very closely and you'll find that in certain areas they, they didn't spend the money they had in the budget. And so therefore you can do a paper exercise to some extent. So you can also take push things over for the next year and not do them this year, and that's how you make them. Very briefly, will it have any impact on the Defence Review then? It will have an impact because you'll have a starting point, but not really. That, that is for a 5, 10, 15, 20-year project. OK. Ukraine, the war is back on. This week has seen the most fighting since February's peace agreement. The death toll stands at around 6,700. I'm joined by Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. And Christopher, you're here as ever still. Uh, (laughs) I didn't mean it quite like that. (laughs) Professor Paul Rogers, good to speak to you. Um, Why has the fighting on such a scale started right now? It's difficult to say. It looks like there's a determined effort to take control of this rather ghost town of Marienka, which is strategically important on the road through to Donetsk, so it's actually important for the separatists. But it's really tricky to find out what's going on because you're getting very different reports coming from each side. The rebels claim they've not advanced. Uh, the Ukraine government said they have, and there have been a lot of shelling and a lot of, lot of, lot of life. Uh, There have been ongoing talks, in fact there were some only two days ago, in relation to the long-term future of the Minsk Agreement, not covering this particular area. Um, Those appear to have broken down, but some Ukraine sources say it's a major breakdown, others that it isn't. So the short answer, it's very tricky to say at this stage what the separatists are planning or how big Putin's involvement is this, this is, and whether it falls part of a wider picture. It may just be, in a sense, a Russian reaction to what they claim 
has been a big increase in NATO activities, exercises and the rest in the Baltic and elsewhere. In other words, political, but of course with a terrible loss of life at the same time. Christopher, how many troops are we talking about and where exactly? Right, let's put some sort of context with what we know, say, about the Russians. Now, the Russians officially not taking part in this conflict on the ground, but they've got three brigades across the border. One of them is uh, is an armoured brigade, an armoured mechanism brigade. You know, and you, you, you talk that through with a load of journalists says, right, that's an invasion force square. You know, that, 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 that's how they see it. However, uh, the uh, Ukrainian army, 50,000 men, uh, including armour, in the eastern region. You then look at another aspect of this. We need to pin down how this particular uh, fighting started because... Mr. Poroshenko, the leader of Ukraine, getting up in his parliament to make his State of the Union speech, his big speech, and he says his main message is that the Russians are about to invade. Um, this quietens a lot of people who are dissenters against him. There's one group that would cynically say that the Ukrainians would have started what the pressure on for this sort of skirmish which turned into a small battle to take place because that takes the heat off uh, Mr Poroshenko uh, in Kiev. Uh, Paul Rogers, you've got the NATO Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, saying the Minsk agreements must be fully implemented and, as Christopher's saying, invasion force on the borders. What's preventing NATO from doing more? I think they're very cautious. I would agree absolutely with Christopher on his analysis of Ukraine politics. Poroshenko's government has all kinds of internal problems. The economy is in a mess. There's a huge amount to do. He has some very right-wing uh, nationalist sources that he has to contend with. So basically, this could actually be something of a diversion. You need a big enemy. As far as NATO is concerned, I think this political analysis, I suspect, is quite well known in senior NATO circles. And they're going to be cautious. They don't want to get mixed up in something which is at least partly relating to domestic politics. They may talk loud, but I don't think too much will happen on the ground, at least in the short term, unless there is a very big flare-up in the coming weeks. Christopher, a Chatham House report from that think tank today accuses the West of being weak, unconvincing in the face of Russian aggression, says it could have been foreseen. Well, it was foreseen. So why was nothing it was done certainly about foreseen, it? Like exactly as the reason there was nothing really done about uh, it was foreseen with the Russian in intervention in Georgia, uh, and uh, there was nothing. In fact, the foreseen but allowed to happen then. Uh, nothing you can do about it. Frankly, mm -hmm. I mean, you can you can come up with a whole list of things that have been foreseen, and here is I mean, it's another subject almost, but here is uh, the, the reality that NATO, twenty odd nations, have all got to sign up if you're going to do anything militarily. So what you can do is politically and economically to try and do something about this. But this was foreseen, it was analysed, it was where it was going to be next. And already we sit around, don't we, Paul, and we say, oh, well, watch Moldova, um, perhaps Estonia, etc. But the truth is that if we got into a NATO forum, we would not be able to physically do anything about it. But watch, watch this weekend when uh, Chancellor Merkel is going to be chairing a meeting to decide what more... Uh, sanctions against uh, Russia can be implemented or whether to, to agree to carry on with them. And the truth is that those sanctions are, are, are working in, in many ways and we think that's really good, but it hasn't stopped the war. Sit rep with Kate Chabot. 
Still to come, problems with the new F-35 fighter jets. Will the new Royal Navy carriers need new flight decks for the American-built aircraft? And to snoop or not to snoop, what impact will America's changes to call monitoring have on British spies? This is SITREP on BFBS. Britain is to boost financial assistance to Iraq for the fight against Islamic State. The Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond has pledged the cash, thought to be around £2 million, to a new United Nations fund after meeting global coalition allies in Paris. He said the money would go alongside a significant contribution to intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance efforts. Lieutenant General Graham Lamb served in Iraq as Deputy Commanding General of the Multinational Force. He's been talking to BF BS reporter Sarah Lockett. If I look at the current situation in Iraq right now, then I'd say that we have, unsurprisingly, tactical convergence with Iran over the question of Daesh, ISIL. We have probably strategic divergence with Iran over the long-term future of Iraq. And that therefore lends you, not with a simple answer, of which there is an easy solution, it leads you actually in a straightforward conundrum, complication, a difficulty, the nature of you know, a troubled world, actually, in fact, how it has always been. So you've said some things are working all right and other things we perhaps need to double up. So what things are you thinking of? The military can contain, you know, we can do a number of things which look demonstrative, maybe look impressive, give the impression of progress. Um, progress will be delivered through a political settlement. You've said that the, the crucial thing in Afghanistan where we were training the Afghan forces was to then actually fight alongside them. Now, how much of an appetite do you think there is amongst politicians for that? Ideally what you should do is prepare them, train them, and then those that have trained with them built the respect, built the understanding, built the trust, built the relationship, should then, in many circumstances, see them through and continue from training to fighting. Now, that requires a different political decision, but, but the idea that you can just train them and fire and forget, an army that has gone through this particular mangle in a short period of time is a significantly large ask that was Lieutenant General Graham Lang, to, Lamb talking to Sarah Lockett. Professor Paul Rogers is still with us. Um, Professor Rogers, is he right? Should coalition troops fight alongside the Iraqi army? I'm very dubious about it. The reality is that the war against Islamic State is proving very difficult. Uh, we had the American Deputy Secretary of State uh, implying at the beginning of the week that things are going well, that 10,000 of the paramilitaries have been killed out of maybe 30,000. The reality on the ground is extremely different. And I think the, the bottom line is that in many ways, the Islamic State uh, senior people actually want a war. They would actually like to have Western troops, British and American others, more heavily involved. What does that bring them? What it brings them is this whole idea that they push relentlessly, that they are in the vanguard of the defense of Islam against the Crusader West. That's the kind of propaganda that is used. They need to have a war. And this is what makes it so incredibly difficult for Western politicians. And why, for example, Obama is far more cautious uh, than John McCain or, or Mitt Romney would have been, because they know that, in a sense, there's a risk of getting dragged in, uh, as has happened in Iraq and before and in Afghanistan as well. So one can see the military logic of doing it, but politically, that, I'm afraid, is a very different matter. 
I tell you an interesting thing. If you, if you say, right, put chaps in there, put boots on the ground, what would they do? You could have some special forces doing reconnaissance, providing intelligence, but to whom do you provide that intelligence? The other thing is that if you did put a force in of any form, how big would that force be? Who would command it? Who would it report to? What would its terms of reference to? That's far too complicated in a military situation at the, situation at the moment where the only certain military-type operation that might have any, any credence is actually commanded by an Iranian general. Paul Rogers, do you think the coalition is making any difference at the moment? Uh, not at the level that they thought. I mean, the air war has been incredibly intense. Uh, there have been many thousands of the Islamic State paramilitaries killed. But the reality is they've taken Ramadi, they've taken territory in Palmyra in Syria. If anything, uh, they've certainly not been fought to a standstill. If anything, they are actually gaining in influence in Syria. There has to be really quite a fundamental rethink uh, and I think the idea that this is going to be over soon, well, the U.S. Special Forces people reckon this is 15 years of war ahead. 15 years of 15 war. 15 years, yeah. Uh, Christopher, we, we talked earlier about Russia. What do you see as the biggest threat to Britain? Is it Russia or is it Islamic State? Uh, they're two quite different things. I mean, people have been saying, oh, well, the Russians, you know, it's fine. Can you compare them even? Are you, can, I don't believe you can compare them at all. Not at all. Uh, for example, um, Russia, I think you can fix the Russia thing. Uh, you fix can, it. How yeah, do you fix it? You can fix it by diplomacy. You can fix it when, when two sides have decided that l let's let's come to reality and let us imagine, for example, Ukraine split in two, Federation. So you're saying you, 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 kind of, you know what you're dealing with to a certain extent you compared can do to it. Islamic State? The point is you can't even begin to negotiate with an Islamic State. Russia, for example, just if you, if you were talking about targets, you know what the targets are, you know what the capabilities are, etc. Uh, with, with Islamic State, there is no target except the individual. It could be mm. one person you know, or two people on the streets of Woolwich, that could be a result. That's a different type of war together. And I think the Islamic State war, uh, and especially, I mean, as Paul was saying earlier, these guys need a war. Without a war, there is no Islamic State, you see. Uh, and I think we get to a point where you have to accept that this could go on and on and on. All you need in Russia, by chance, would be Putin to go and get a day job somewhere. Uh, and, 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 and you don't uh, think he's got one now, then? Well, no. People like Evgeny Velikov or something that's suddenly taking over, who is a great friend of the rest, and say, look, can we go back only three years to where we were attending all the NATO meetings, etc.? Can we go back to that state? And the answer would probably be yes. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers, thank you very much for your time today. Could there be major problems with the production of the new F-35 fighter jets which are being built for Britain's new aircraft carriers? Lieutenant Commander Sharkey Ward is a former Harrier pilot and has been doing some digging on the matter, the results of which have been sent to the as yet unformed Commons Defence Committee. We can talk to him, stalk him maybe as well via Stike. Um, good to speak to you today. Um, what have you t found out exactly? Oh, hello. Good morning to you. Hello. Well, I've I've been reading the United States Department of Defense Inspector General report on the project, on the F-35 project, and also the uh, Director of Operational Test and Evaluation report, which are both official documents and, uh, unlike media reports in magazines, can be relied upon. And basically the reports are now saying, as they did last year, that the latest report identifies more safety, reliability and combat risks with the aircraft, questions the project's ability to produce an aircraft which is safe to fly, 
and indicates that the US Navy is now considering fresh orders for the F-18 Super Hornet aircraft instead to fill any gap in the F-35 capability. These are quite fundamental so, things you're talking about, safe to fly. Yes, it, yes they are, and uh, they're being swept under the table a little bit because of the huge size of this project uh, and uh, the importance it is to um, basically congressmen and senators in the United States who all have fingers in the pie in their communities of uh, jobs for the boys. Um, and also in, in UK we, we, we have a problem that the Secretary of State Philip Hammond when he was for defense uh, he, he said you know the, our new strike carriers are the heart of our strategic uh, defense capability. Well, the F-35 Stovall, that's the vertical takeoff one which the, our government misguidedly has opted for, will not allow us to produce a full strike carrier capability from our magnificent new carriers. Instead, it's put a ramp on the deck which prevents operation of other aircraft such as the Hawkeye, which is a mini AWACS aircraft, and most importantly, uh, defense suppression aircraft. If you remember Libya, when Libya erupted into action, the first thing that happened was that the F-18 Super Growler aircraft from the US Navy suppressed all the air defenses of Libya throughout the land so that our aircraft and uh, Tomahawk missiles could come in unopposed and destroy the air defense inf infrastructure. Mm. That's very important for the future if you're a strike carrier to be able to say, okay, we don't want to be shot at, we don't want to lose our expensive aircraft, so let's suppress all the defences, and we can do that with the, the Super Growler, which is what it's made for, and it does it very well. Christopher Lee. Now, do you yeah, uh, uh, is this a good point, though, uh, Sharky, that you take an aircraft carrier, you put round it a destroyer frigate escort and a couple of um, submarines, and you send it off yeah. as your force projection. And when you do so, you'd be better off with a flat deck and you'd be better off with aircraft that uh, you know that can fly and incidentally the deck you don't have to reinforce the deck because you might set fire to it with the with, with the way that the present idea of the F-35 is conceived. Isn't it simple to be able to say we want force projection that is the obvious way to do it so okay why aren't they? Well because there has been intense pressure um, since 1967 basically as my mem memorandum points out from Mod UK Air, that's the air staff side of the Ministry of Defence, for them to have a bigger slice of the pie than uh, Naval Air. And to that end, they have a very strong voice and in inflation-linked terms, £360 billion have been spent on land-based aircraft that cannot operate from carriers since 1970s mm. and only £16 billion on carrier aircraft, you know, the Harrier Sea Harrier which is an in, enormous gap in, in, in expenditure. So just, now, just, just, to, just to bring you up to date with now, I mean, what, what, what are the options, given the situation you're portraying? Well, the options are, we, the best thing that could happen at the moment for the F-35 is that it proves capable of operating to some degree from our carriers. But at the same time, our government should understand that that aircraft, with its many, many limitations, which were not foreseen when they opted for it, should be replaced and the carrier decks reconfigured to place on board a, a more forceful strike carrier air group at much less cost, by the way. Much less? The, That's surprising. Why is that? 
Well, the F-18 Hornet, Super Hornet, costs about 60 million US dollars, okay? The F-18 Super Growler costs about 90 million US dollars. The F-35 Stovall is going to cost about 200 million US dollars, mm. maybe more. But rather, rather like our uh, Typhoon, you know, the Eurofighter, which yeah. at the last count was 127 million pounds per copy. Uh, and we, we've asked the MOD for a response to all of this, and we're still waiting for their statement. Um, we'll obviously let our listeners know when we get it. But have you spoken to them? Have you had any response to the concerns you've been raising? No, they, they don't really like replying to retired officers, and especially <laughs> to me, because I'm one of the few people who will stand up and be counted on these matters. Mm. Uh, and obviously, I, I take great interest in it and great pride in Britain's forces, not just the Navy, but all three forces, and I want them to go in the right direction, but they're not at the moment, and this is partly to do with uh, empire building by the air staff uh, and build, buying all these ground-based aircraft that can't operate properly overseas. And it's partly to do with a, an, a lack of common sense mm. and uh, military co logic in both the naval staff and our government, in our, well, our ministers. Listen, Lieutenant Commander Sharkey, it's been great speaking to you. Maybe you'll come back on the programme again. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit rep. American spy agencies can no longer collect phone records in bulk after the U.S. Senate voted to stop the practice, which was brought in after 9-11. In future, they'll need a warrant to get hold of them. Well, Richard Norton-Taylor writes for The Guardian on defence and security matters, and he joins us now. Uh, Richard, our government wants more of these so-called snooping powers. Does it mean we're moving in the opposite direction from America, then? Christopher, would you like to answer that? We wait for, wait for Richard to uh, get his phone working. I don't think we're I don't think we're moving in the opposite, opposite direction. I mean, the aims are both there. But what is happening here is that the president says, uh, "Okay, I want to have these powers to be able to snoop uh, in something which is uh, called metadata. In other words, you make a call, somebody can actually pick it up just as a and say, I know." Who you are. This person's called this person. This, and we know what time, but we don't know what they said, mm. and that is the basic sort of thing. Uh, but Congress, or especially the Senate, has taken it on themselves and said, no, 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 hang on, we're not going to do this because there is a movement in America, in, in the people of America, to, to, to do this quite differently, to have a limited amount, but not when you consider 14 agencies in Washington all picking up and the slightest detail that they wish they can do. Do you think what's happening in America is going to have any impact on British intelligence and the way they go about things? No, because I, I think that with the new, supposedly the, the new bill that's going to come in on intelligence, the intelligence bill, um, it's, going to, it's going to put restrictions on what can be done and clearly define those restrictions. And also, there's going to be a person in charge who is going to be vetting, for example, GCHQ, to make sure this is done. Okay. Um, in other developments uh, this week regarding the US and Russia, an interesting deal or no deal? Ah, I believe Richard Norton-Taylor is now available on the phone. Let's, uh, let's go back to him. Uh, Richard Norton-Taylor from The Guardian. Uh, military relying on information provided by agencies GCHQ. Do you think what's happening in the US is going to impact on them and their military operations? Well, I don't think uh, immediately, but I, what, what is really interesting about this is that the uh, USA Freedom Act passed in Congress the other day is going to uh, put restrictions on the way the National Security Agency, i.e. GCHQ's partner, uh, uh, conducts mass uh, domestic surveillance. And, uh, um, and 
and the NSA and agencies in America will have to go to courts more often, and private companies, internet companies, will control in future the information, will keep the information rather than the NSA. But a, a couple of things, sorry I missed you earlier. Um, I, I think what is really interesting is the debate in America is going towards more transparency and accountability, if you like, and more limits on what uh, security intelligence agencies can have and keep on people. And uh, whereas in Britain, especially with the new government, and Theresa May, the Home Secretary, announced the other day that they want security intelligence here, agencies here, to have more information on individuals and more sort of mass surveillance, on certainly on the content of uh, communications on the internet, social media, as well as telephones. But um, if I could just add, so I did miss the beginning of your conversation, unfortunately. But the new head of where GCN, were you, Richard? Well, I, I, the problem with electronic... Was I was phone, here. Was your phone having trouble I with was, whoever was listening in on you? Nothing to do with the phone. It was actually... Do, maybe it's the Guardian system here. <laughs> I was here, sitting down on, in the studio here. Anyway, um, <laughs> Robert Hannigan, the new head of GCHQ, has made it quite clear that uh, they should be more open, at least explain what they do. And the other interesting... That, that's British security intelligence agencies in particular, and of course GCHQ, MI5 and MI6 will say, was privately, uh, was much too secretive. MI6, the Foreign Intelligence Agency, and MI5, the Domestic Security uh, uh, Service. Now, the other thing, of course, as far as the military is concerned, the GCHQ say that they are much more, uh, they are much more relevant to military operations recently, and they have it particularly in Afghanistan, in helping uh, soldiers on the ground and so on, and pilots, for that matter, uh, and uh, ships captains and all that to know what is happening around about them, i.e. intercepting, intercepting intelligence mm -hmm. And so that is quite interesting. And the other interesting thing is, so which something which bugs me actually, is the other aspect of the increasing use of special, or importance of special forces in counterinsurgency operations and future sort of mini wars, or what you want to call them. But of course, special forces is an absolute ban, on official ban on, de on describing as, a, as, as journalists uh, what they uh, do. Of course, the ban is, is often broken and, uh, or kept in the breach rather than the observance, because when something goes right, of course, special forces soldiers want to mm. uh, are proud of what they want to do. But there is this whole argument which is building up, and it will be in the next few years in Britain as a new government tr uh, uh, tries to impose more, uh, or at least rather give the security intelligence agencies more power, whereas in America, our closest ally, very close intelligence uh, cooperations we have with, with the Americans are getting much more open uh, and, and much more open discussion about right. what they can do there. All right, Richard Norton-Taylor, thank you very much for your time today. Um, that's Richard Norton-Taylor, who is writes for The Guardian on defence and security matters. Uh, now for some sport. I never thought I'd actually say that on SITREP. Uh, next week, SITREP will be coming to you from a commentary box at Lord's Cricket Ground, where the Inter-Services 2020 cricket is taking place. Will BFBS sports reporter Julian Evans is here. Hello, Julian. Um, a big event in the Forces Sporting calendar, isn't it? It is. It's, it's a nice one for the lads to go and play at the home of cricket. So all three services will be playing, as you say, in a T20 tournament. Uh, it's been there for the last, well, since 2005, Forces players have been able to play at the home of cricket. But the last few years that they've been playing T20. I suppose you could argue that, that forces sport is pure sport. No corruption, no doping scandals. Not that we know of. Uh, I'm uh, sure there aren't uh, any. Are you alluding to something happening in Switzerland? At no, the not at all. No. Would uh, I? Yes. I mean, it, you go from grassroots level all the way up to professional sport people competing at Olympic level, international level, and as you say, you know, inter-unit level, well, that really is grassroots. And why is it such a high standard when you talk about Olympic level, for example? Well, attributes. If you go into, if you're a young person and, and you're keen at sport and you go into a recruiting office, all the attributes that are required to be a soldier, sailor and airman 
uh, are those that are shared with professional sportsmen or p- people that play sport. Do you, do you think we're going to see a blossoming of forces sport now that the, the operations, for example, in Afghanistan have come to an end? Possibly, but that does coincide with the drawdown elsewhere and the reduction in numbers of our servicemen and women who, who mm. are available because whilst things have quietened in Afghanistan things haven't quietened everywhere else uh, Christopher as I did say we're going to be at Lords next week um, the role of cricket has been quite interesting in wars hasn't it it has if you go back to really I suppose the time in India in the, into the 19th century um, and you find that the the British then were teaching the even sepoys uh, who took part in the, the rebellion against the uh, British teach them how to play cricket and, and that would be rather good and, and, and the fact, use of cricket is kind of a, a normality sometimes in a war zone I'm thinking of uh, well, Gallipoli uh, for yeah, well, example Gallipoli. when they played on the beaches there just to make things seem a little bit more normal well that's right but they were losing heavily and, they, and you can always sort of rather bo- sort of putting up more flags you play cricket but the uh, Afghanistan I mean the Afghan the Afghan son was in the World Cup you know uh, this uh, this past Indeed. series and uh, they learned to play cricket with the British Army I mean, in modern times. And so there is this sort of balancing out of, uh, of ideas. I mean, it doesn't end there. British, uh, the army sailors are probably the best sailors, unfortunately, uh, in, in offshore. In <laughs> Hurts offshore. to say that, does it? it? It does hurt. But there is something else, you know. Why do we spend so much money on the services in sport at Lords, at Chamonix for their skiing, etc., when we've got, as we report at the top of the programme, a cut in the defence budget. Well, has, has we, bad we light can... stopped play there, Christopher? <laughs> Sounds like it. Join us on Sitrep next Thursday from Lords when we'll be looking at the links between cricket and the military. And of course, you'll be able to hear match commentary on BFBS radio throughout the day. Thank you, Christopher, and thank you, Julian Evans. See you next week. Bye bye for now. Digital radio, FM and satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air. Around the world. This is the Forces Station. The FBS.